0: So it's been said that Isaiah is the thundering prophet. Powerful, dramatic prophet, whom we will get to next. That Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. The dark and emotional prophet. Probably wore black clothes, skinny jeans, and long hair combed over the eye, right? But Ezekiel is the weird prophet he does some strange things. And if you read the first three chapters already, you know that some of what he's called to do is weird. So I'm going to do something weird too. It's so small, they're more like handcuffs than anything. But this is a puddle jumper. It's, um, It's a little... This pink floaty device is what my daughter uses when she goes in the water. And actually, has she grown out of this yet? Okay, so this summer maybe she'll grow out of this. But um, it, it, this is a great device. I don't know if you've seen them, but it kind of wraps around this, the chest here and the arms go through and it clips in the back. So it's not just like the little things on your arms that can fall off. It's like it's like a vest and it kind of like the floaty arms, too, at the same time, and so she can learn to swim with this. So this is a great device, but there's going to come a day when she's not going to need this anymore, right? She's going to grow up, and she's going to want to go in the deeper water. Um, There came a day when I didn't need this anymore. Yeah, I don't try to squeeze into this, contrary to what you might be thinking. (laughs) I grew out of this. But that doesn't mean, does it, that this device is faulty because I don't need it anymore? Does it mean that this thing somehow failed me because I'm going to shed my wings, so to speak, and uh, get this off? Like, Does that mean that this is now, this failed? Like it let me down somehow? No. It means that I grew up. It means that I changed. As we come to this opening section of Ezekiel, we're going to see that Ezekiel goes to this moment where he was once paddling around in the shallow end, but then discovers I don't need these anymore. Like this served its purpose, but something radical has happened in my life and in my brother and sister's lives, Israel, the community of Israel, something's happened and God is taking the puddle jumper off of our arms. He wants us to go to the deeper end. He wants us to have a deeper life. It's great. We start, you know, we come to Jesus, and we're wallowing in the shallow end, and it's great because it's it's fun. It's fun to splash around and build sand castles. But then he says, don't build your house on the sand, build it on the rock, and he calls us deeper, and we're realizing, okay, he wants to cast our nets into deeper water and catch a bunch of fish, and we're realizing that there's a journey, right? And that is what we're going to see Ezekiel being ushered into here at the beginning. So as we open Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us right off the bat his age, In the 30th year. So, this is of his life. He's now 30 years old, which is significant because he is from a priestly family. We know from the book of Leviticus that the priests started their ministry at the age of 30 and ended at the age of 50. So Ezekiel, had he still been in Jerusalem where the temple was, he would just now, on his very birthday, be becoming a priest. Something he would have been looking forward to, studying for, and training for all his life. But, he's not in Jerusalem. The temple is no longer there. It's been destroyed. As we saw in our journey through Jeremiah, the Babylonians, the big bad wolf, came and huffed and puffed and blew their house down. Because they stopped living on the stone, on the rock of God's word, and started doing things their way. And the temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, and many of the Jews were taken to Babylon. Those that were left were left because the Babylonians saw them as too weak, too insignificant, too pathetic. Well, guess who got grabbed in this mass exodus? Ezekiel. He's now 30, and instead of sitting in the temple... Becoming a priest. He's sitting by the river. Chabar. In the land of Babylon. So in verse 1. In the 30th year. In the 4th month. On the 5th day of the month. As I was among the exiles. A very sad deported bunch. By the Chabar canal. The heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. So this is the year 593. B.C., which means 586 is when Jerusalem, uh, the whole thing is actually going to fall in 586. So you know, seven eight years from now. But Ezekiel is not going to be there to see it, and he's not going to be there to become a priest. He's all the way in Babylon. And now on the fifth day, verse two of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile, of King Jehoiakim. The word of Yahweh came to Ezekiel the priest the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, Babylonians, by the Chabar Canal. And the hand of Yahweh was upon him there. Okay. Ezekiel is by the Chabar Canal with the exiles. If you will look ahead just slightly to chapter 3, verse 15, we get a more specific location. Ezekiel 3, verse 15 And I, this is Ezekiel talking, I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Chabar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. So Tel Aviv is an actual place now that we can find on the Chabar Canal. And according to one commentator, Tel Aviv refers to a small town left over from the flood. A small town left over from the flood. And the the guess is that this is actually a town of ruins that at one time the canal had overflowed its banks and destroyed this village and now is recited back to where it should be and that they place these Jews in this old abandoned village, this ghost town and say, here, live here and it's your job to work on this irrigation project. So the idea, the belief is that the Jews were actually in labor camp in this abandoned village trying to help the canals flow better so that the Babylonians can enjoy more water in their barren desert. Fun existence, huh? That's where he is. Now, as we see him sitting by this river at the opening of the book, hold your place here and go to the end of the book. Chapter 47. Chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a river that is flowing out of the end times temple. So he sees that there's a new temple in Jerusalem. It's the end time temple that will never perish and that God's going to bless the land from there. And at this temple, he sees this river flowing out from the altar. And Ezekiel gets to explore it with the help of a guide. So look at chapter 47, verse 3. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. And it was ankle deep. So this river, Ezekiel's going to explore. The man leads him ankle deep into the river. Puddle jumper depth, right? Then he led me, uh, verse four, again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep and he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep and he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Yeah, I love this. The book opens with this puny little canal that they're slaves for, for the Babylonians, and ends with this majestic river that Ezekiel is intimidated to pass through, flowing from God's restored temple. And if you continue reading, you'll see that this water goes and heals the land and has all kinds of fish in it. And it is is nourishing these trees whose leaves are for healing. This is a beautiful end time picture. New heaven and new earth. That's how Ezekiel's going to flow. Get it? From a tiny canal to this water of life river at the end of time. So it's time to shed the puddle jumpers and dive in. Yeah. So he's by this canal. The visions of God are opened up to him. And I want you to look now at chapter 1 verse 3. The hand of Yahweh was upon Ezekiel there. That word there flopped around before me like a fish out of water. I can stop with the analogies. It it was there. That word there just stuck out. That here in this Land where they feel that God has been defeated, that God has abandoned them. He's thrust them out of their land to go live amongst pagans. That even in this horrible abandoned town where they are in a work camp for the Babylonians, trying to get this muddy little canal to move along, that there God opens the heavens and shows himself to Ezekiel. On the day he would become a priest in the temple, Ezekiel gets to see that God does not have to be met within a building in Jerusalem, but that he is bigger and broader than the bounds of their religious system and is now being met even by the banks of the canal, Shabar. He met him there. That must have been the most encouraging thing to Ezekiel to know God is here with us where we feel abandoned, where we feel like our task is menial, and I have lost my long awaited chance to be a priest. God visits there and says, Priest? No, Ezekiel, I'm calling you to be a prophet. And so now Ezekiel has visions, not of the Ark of the Covenant, not of the veil that covers the Ark of the Covenant, not of the golden altar where they burn incense, not of the golden lampstand or of the golden table with the showbread on it, not of... The sacrificial bronze altar, not of the courts and the gates and the priests singing their hallelujahs and the fifteen Psalms of Ascent on the steps up to the temple. He's not seeing any of that. As excellent as that would have been, he's now seeing the substance behind those things of which they were symbols of. He has the heavens ripped open and he sees God. Happy birthday, Ezekiel. But he's in deep water now because when you see these visions of God, the burden is severe. As you will see uh, next week, he's got to do some weird things like lay on his side for a year. And as I looked, so now let's look at the vision. I'm going to be straight confession here. I'm going to do a straight confession. I've forever just been so scared of the book of Ezekiel because of these opening chapters. They, unless you really want to know about this prophet, this first chapter is enough to make you say, all right, there's better stuff in this book, isn't there? It is weird. What you need to do right now is erase from your mind anything you've seen on some documentary about UFOs. Erase that, because <laughs> that is not what's being communicated. And you need to also wipe out of your operating system your need for literalism. This is not meant to paint bizarre pictures of four-headed things with wheels and wheels and wheels. And like, how do I construct this in my head? And how would that, like, on a technical level, how would that even move? You're not meant to ask those questions because what you're going to see, in fact, let's just, let's just spoil it. Let's look down at verse 28. It's a long verse, but the middle of verse 28, chapter 1, 28. This is how he's going to end up describing it. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Do you hear that? Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. He didn't say, this is what the glory of Yahweh looked like. He said, nor did he say, this is like what the glory of Yahweh looked like. Nope. He used every vague reference he could. This was the appearance of something like the glory of Yahweh. He's telling us right off, well, at the end here, he's telling us, I can't really describe what I saw. So just just take this as a wisp, the smoke of the actual fire that was there. This is This is the best I can do. And if you've ever heard anybody who's trying to communicate to you a dream, like this is so amazing, like this happened, and you're bored out of your mind, right? Like, people cannot describe dreams interestingly. It's like a curse. Like, nobody can make a dream sound interesting except the person who's saying it. They think it's interesting. You know what I mean, right? Imagine now trying to explain seeing the vision of God to someone. They're going to be like, uh, you sound like Ezekiel 1. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Because he's trying to explain the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. So now you see his reaction, right? So yeah, what I'm trying to tell you is like, you're going to just screw your head around going, what? And I was just losing my mind saying, ugh, and falling on my face. So now you know, try not to figure this out mentally. Try not to read this too literally. We just have to take it for what it is. So chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. So as I looked, behold... A stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness, you're going to hear things like that a lot, the likeness, the appearance of, because he's trying to let us know, this is not exactly what I saw, like, I just can't communicate it. Uh, so where was I? In it... And he, this was their appearance. The four living creatures, yes. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. I don't know why, but that just makes me think of muscular. Probably not what it means, though. I don't know. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And so they don't have human feet. They have calf feet, but they have human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus, verse 9, Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. But there were three others. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings. Each of which touched the other wing of another. While two covered their bodies. I think this needs a recess. Hold your place at verse 12 so okay so we've got this burnished bronze appearance they've got calf feet they've got human hands they look like a human but they've got four faces and we know they have four wings two of their wings are touching the wings of others so the best we can imagine this if you will just let me use this box it's not why it's here but just use this Um, this one is standing here facing you the other standing here facing to the right, your left. The other standing here facing the other way. And this guy standing here is facing toward me so that the backs of their heads are all looking at each other. Okay. So it's kind of like they're making a cube. Two of their upper wings are touching the other wings of them next to each other. So kind of like in the Ark of the Covenant, it said that the cherub were on either side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and the wings spread over toward one another. So, but now we've got four of them, right? It's not two-dimensional, it's like four-dimensional. It's pretty cool. So their wings, as, as in the temple, the wings were said to be the throne of God, where His feet touched down on earth. Um, in between the wings was where His glory would meet Israel. Here we've got these four sets of wings, and, In the middle of these, we're going to find out later what's there. But then the other two wings are covering their bodies. So, each of them, and it seems, from what I can read, it seems that the human face is the one that's facing out. So, either way that you look at the front of it, it's a human face. The face of the eagle is facing in toward each other. And then on the left and right, you have the ox and the lion face. Okay? Yeah, right? Just go with it. So, in verse 12... And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. So they went wherever the spirit led, but they never turned. So they could go, it, almost like they could just shift without true physics. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So when this whole thing moved, these four moved together, they were just darting. Like there was no, like physics didn't explain this. What your physics teacher taught you, how things move in the world, it doesn't fit here. These things are just teleporting from here to there as quick as lightning, just moving around. Un- maybe unpredictably. Maybe, I don't know. Just, you're like looking at like what's going on. Verse 15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures. This is where it gets a little harder. One for each of the four of them. Verse 16. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And that's where I'm lost. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living... (laughs) Can you imagine seeing as a wheel spins what your, what your eyes are catching? It would just be dizzying. Um, and their rims were tall and awesome. The, wheel, the eyes were all around it. Verse 19, and when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. It almost sounds like a chariot, right? And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose alongside with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So the wheels, it seems, are an extension of the being of these four living creatures. Over the heads, verse 22. Remember I talked, we're going to get to the part, what's maybe in the middle of these wings as they're touching in the center? Here we go. Verse 22. Over their heads, over the heads of the four living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads, And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. So that's review. And each creature had two wings covering his body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, tumult. Like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. Now verse 26. Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne. You're going to see the word likeness and appearance appear a ton here. Because we're now getting to the God presence itself. So above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed around him. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. I think that's the only like declarative statement he made. There was brightness around him. Back to appearances. Like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I would like to interview Ezekiel one day about this so yeah look he's grabbing right for whatever he can to explain what he cannot it's, it's a really hard task one of the things he grabs that his audience would know about was the, the vision of cherubim. These four creatures with the wings and the faces are cherubim. And they were actually known in the pagan world, um, the, the Babylonian world and the pagan world at large. Cherubim were a common theme in their temple and religious art. Now, so what's interesting about this is if you look at the way that the pagans saw cherubim, at the way Ezekiel's seen cherubim, it actually starts to tell us something that we have not seen yet. (laughs) See, in their imagery, um, the pagans talked about the cherubim as being static beings. They either stood guard in front of the temple doors or they upheld the throne of the god. That was it. They just stayed there. What's unique about Ezekiel's vision is that these cherubim, we are told, have wheels and they're moving around and they're flashing to and fro, right? They're in constant motion because this is not, Yahweh is not the God of the temple on the hill called Mount Zion in Jerusalem. No, he is the God of the entire earth. And he met Ezekiel there, right? So this is what we see when the difference is that these cherubim move. They are not static. They are dynamic, right? Constantly in motion, which is what Christianity has taught us from the very beginning, is that God is three in one. That if you just have a one being, you have a static being. But if you have three in one, within that one being, you have a dynamic exchange of love and presence. A dance, as C.S. Lewis described it in Mere Christianity. Constantly in motion because God does not sit in one place and just wait for everything to happen. God is always in motion. Like a river, flowing. Ezekiel's being called into this movement of this God who is always in movement. Notice also, the four faces. Does it ring a bell, these creatures and their four faces? You're like, nope, never dreamed that before. <laughs> yeah, but it should. If you if you remember Revelation chapter four, we see a vision of God on the throne, very similar, at least it borrows a lot of the imagery from here in Ezekiel. John in Revelation sees God in very similar terms that Ezekiel sees God. And the four living creatures there, um, it's not one creature with four faces. This time, it's four different creatures, each with one of the faces. So slightly different, maybe depended on what angle these prophets were standing at, because God's a big, dynamic being. Um, But what we have is the same four creatures describing God. The ox, the human, the eagle, the lion. And what we see is that it seems... (laughs) the prophet is just reaching for the best components of the created world and mixing them together and saying, this is sort of like the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. If I just take the best aspects of creation and mix them. And so what you have is the lion in his majesty, right? His strength, his power, that's God. But he's not just strong and powerful like a lion, lest you just call God the lion and worship the beast with the mane. He's also like the eagle, just swift and graceful in flight, can see everything from the top, can move freely. He's also like the ox, which ancients celebrated for its procreative ability. Not just can the ox make more little baby oxen, but the ox was responsible for plowing the fields, which would then give them food to eat so that they can keep living. The ox was the animal of the harvest, right? The animal of food. And the face of a human. Because human beings, unlike the rest of creation, have the capability to show compassion and love for each other as does God. So God is something like the best of these components together. But as you've probably studied before, because I know many of us love Revelation, that these four animals also have a pairing with the four Gospels. Because as Jesus is the Son of God, and we couldn't describe Jesus with one Gospel, it took four. Just like it's taking these four creatures to describe the foundation of the throne of God. So it took four gospels to describe Jesus, the Son of God, and this is—you can read almost any commentator, at least in the in the Calvary um, view of uh, Revelation—they usually go along lines like this: the lion represents the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew showed Jesus as the King, the Son of David, who came with power. The eagle represents the gospel of John because John shows us that he was with God from the beginning and came swooped down to be with us. And then he always said, when the son of man is lifted up, all the world will know he swooped back up into heaven. The ox, because the ox is the gospel of Mark, because in Mark, Jesus is the servant who came to lay down his life for his friends and the human being the gospel of Luke, because in the gospel of Luke, we see Jesus making intimate connection with the least, the last, and the lost who were rejected by the elite human beings. He became the human one to the rejected human ones. Why do I go through the trouble of pointing this out? Because I think in this vision, we're also seeing something about God that relates directly to us and what we experience as we try to walk out our faith in God in this world. It's that God is so big, God is such a dynamic being, that no one of us can gaze directly into all of the many faces of God. Let me say that again. God is so big and so incomprehensible for us that none of us can see all the faces of God at once. So what happens is we see one of the faces of God at a time. And we like to group ourselves with other Christians who see the same face of God and then be suspicious of the other Christians who see the other face of God. We call these denominations or different churches with their various names. And when I thought about this, I thought, this is, this is actually really true. The lion, right? The powerful face of God. This looks historically like the Calvinists. Matthew's gospel is all about doctrine and teaching. Jesus is a teacher in that book. Guess what the Calvinists did? All about the preaching of the word. We've borrowed a lot from that a little bit, a lot, a little. But the preaching of the word, and and you read the Calvinist writings, all the reformers from Martin Luther to John Calvin to Charles Spurgeon to uh, others today. Uh, They're they're very academic-minded. They are big on doctrine. They defend doctrine. They fight valiantly for doctrine. You want to read great books of doctrine? Find someone who is a Puritan or a Calvinist. You may not agree with all their doctrine, of course, but they upheld doctrine like it was God himself. A body of divinity, and the name's escaping right now, Uh, Andrew somebody, a body of divinity, one of the best, just... Just raw books of theology in the world. Um, The Calvinists. Then you have the eagle. Oh, the eagle. Lofty, high, majestic. Oh, those mystics. Those Christians who pray in silence forever and ever and ever. Like the monks or the monasteries or, or the John Corsons of this world. And if you know John Corson, you know what I'm getting at. Some Christians just have see this face of God that kind of flies above it all. They emphasize, as the Gospel of John does, the devotion of the one who was before the beginning. And you know those Christians, that that to them, it's not doctrine, it's devotion. It's not the head, it's the heart. It's about engaging with God in a relational way. It's about experiencing him. It's about relationship. The eagle. Then you have the ox. And just like in Mark's gospel, Jesus, the one who goes to the cross and gains a bunch of followers, the ox is the animal of the harvest that reaps abundance for the people to eat. This is the face of the evangelicals. Those who loved spread the message of good news to the world. They see everything as evil and sinful and in need of the gospel. So they see the face of the ox. This this would be like... Uh, Greg Laurie, Billy Graham, this kind of vein of Christianity. Peter, the Apostle Peter, who gave the first altar call in the Bible in Acts chapter 3, and continued to do so through the book of Acts. And then you have the last one, the human face. The Gospel of Luke, of course. And as Luke emphasized Jesus' mission to the outcast, so we have those Christians who emphasize mission to the outcast. They're not quite like the evangelical, concerned with saving the world and getting them to say the prayer to receive Jesus. They're more interested in feeding hungry bellies and giving heads a pillow to sleep on. And typically, and this is not at all to pigeonhole anybody who's in this vein, but very typically your liberal mainline denominations look at God in this way. And so here, very, very overly simplified, we've broken the Christian family into four groups who are simply looking at the same God from four different sides. Why do I say all this? Again, because this is where we're walking now. And rather than being critical of those who are seeing this face of God and you're over here, it doesn't mean they're wrong any more than it means you're right. It means that maybe one day, you will get the call to live a deeper life. And you will start to see the other face of God as you move around. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to look at some of the other people and say, What? How in the, how in the world? And they're going to say the same about us. Like I, was, I wrote a 300-page thesis on how your view of the Trinity was wrong he's like, I wrote a 500-page sermon about how you... You know, going back and forth. like, And then they laugh and realize, <laughs> oh, I get it. God's bigger than that, right? God's bigger than that. And so we'll get together and realize, oh, now we see the full picture. Ezekiel got to see it all at once. How that would change him. Do you see now his reaction in verse 28? I fell on my face. And then you saw over in chapter 3... We already read in verse 15, at the end, it says, I sat there overwhelmed among the exiles for seven days because he saw what none of us have been able to see at one time. Boom, it's all there. He was overwhelmed. He was taken to the deep end. Puddle jumpers ripped off and said, all right, deal with it, buddy. He did just fine. He wrote enough chapters at least. So... I have these three boxes up here because I think there's going to come a time when we are going to experience God there, as Ezekiel did. Not in the comforts of the Jerusalem temple where you met God, but you're going to meet him there where things are different and tough. And maybe you were used to seeing God as the face of a lion, but over here you're going to see him as the face of the ox. Or you saw him as the face of a man, but now you're going to see him as the face of an eagle. A myriad of options here. And so, like the Jews, you grow up in box number one, a system of order. We know who God is. We worship God the right way. All the other nations are pagans. We got the true God. And and we have our our books in the Bible. We have our psalms. We have our prayers. We have our worship services. We have our priests and our prophets and our king and our temple. And it's all here. It's all a system of order. And we know God and we love him. We're trying to walk in his way. Box one, the box of order. You and I were born in this box. When you came to Christ, you entered into this box, and you knew him in his simplicity, and you loved him, and you walked with him, and things were going swimmingly. You had your life vest. Christ was your life vest. Do you remember that? And maybe you're there now. But then, box two happens somewhere in life. This is the box of disorder. You go from order to disorder, and this box severely disrupts everything you thought you knew. Suddenly, you're not sure. How could God let the temple fall? How could God let us move to Babylon? How could God let me not get that job or lose our house? Or how could God let my child? And it goes on and on. The box of disorder. When you get here, you have an option. You can... Stay here. A lot of people do this. And they're the ones that become the critics of the God we worship. Some of them become atheists. Some of them just become agnostic and indifferent. Some of them become very bitter. They're the ones that are always questioning, because they live in disorder now. Who is God? There is no God. How can you explain God? I don't get God. You and your crazy fantasy disorder. You can stay here. Or you can return to the order you once knew... And try to build this up stronger and tougher and become more rigid and more serious about it. But you and I know Christians who've done this. And they're the ones Jesus looked in the face and said, you hypocrites. They're the Pharisees. In troubled times, they regressed back to what they knew. Because when you're desperate, sometimes all you can do is reach for the only thing you know. But regression is never the path of God. Not as Ezekiel sees it here. God is moving. He's taking us somewhere. And so Ezekiel could have gone back and said, no, 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 I'm not looking at this vision. I'm going to stay here in this little comfortable what I used to know about God when I was 15, when I was at youth camp, when I was in Sunday school. Friends, what we train our children or what you learn when you first come to Christ is fantastic and necessary. But there comes a time when people grow up and their questions grow up too. This puddle jumper is no longer getting them to the deep end. Like, they want to explore the deep end. And so they begin to ask questions. And we tell them, no, you can't ask that. Just have faith. Stop wondering. And we push them back over here. Yet within, they're yearning, and they're going, and they're like, but this happened in my life, and my parents got a divorce. And do you wonder why the stats show that the great majority of Christians walk away from their faith in the ages of 20, the 20s? Why? Why? Because we don't encourage this disorder as an option. We vow that they go back. I don't know what I'm saying. That we, we can make them go back to order. Stop asking questions. I've talked to so many people. Yes, youth, but also people that are our age. Who found this box too shallow but didn't know where else to go, so found themselves in this wishy-washy place of disorder and confessed, I don't even know that I'm a Christian because I can't make sense of anything anymore. The good news is that we don't have to stay in this box of disorder. We don't have to go back and try to cram everything into this small box of order. We can move from order to disorder to reorder. We can move to reorder which is only arrived at if we're willing to go through the mess that life and God take us through. But so many times we sit by the canal Chabar in Babylon and say, no, this can't be happening, and we flee back to the comforts of order, and we put on our puddle jumpers, and we just say, I'm not moving. But by the end of the book, Ezekiel is swimming or he's trying, and it gets even too deep for him. He's trying to swim in the swift, moving, living water of God. He's, he's finding reorder through this book. And I think he's wanting to lead us, right? From puddle jumpers to actual swimmers. From the, the muddy little canal irrigation system of Babylon to the living water flowing out of the temple of God and healing the world. So it's when we're in disorder that we're at the crossroads and we have to ask, am I willing to see a vision of God? Or am I just going to say, no, 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 he's always been the face of the ox, always the face of the ox. Ezekiel saw it all. And I found in my life that I've related to those different aspects of God at different seasons in my life. And I think that if I had just insisted on, no, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this, I would probably be yelling like that all the time. <laughs> and it's sad. Like, I know, I know people who used to be my mentor who now do nothing, but it seems like every other sermon is a rant on who's a false teacher, who you can't trust. And every sermon has basically become this whole hedging you into a smaller and smaller existence till they're the only teacher you can actually listen to because they're the only one you can really trust. That, that is, that's a life that moved into disorder and freaked out and ran back and tried to... What's the word when you... When a hurricane's coming, bar the hatches or something like that, whatever. Just that's it. batten down the hatches. Someone's been there before. You come back and you batten down the hatches, and that, that's what, to me, that's what that life sounds like. Yes, friends, there are false teachers. There are people who claim they know God, but don't. The best test is not my judging them. Horrible way to test them. The best test is the way Jesus said, what's their fruit? Good fruit comes from a good tree, Matthew chapter 7. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. And by fruit, we mean their life. Do they love? Are they patient? Are they kind? Is there joy? If they're missing these fruits of the Spirit, that is the sign of someone who doesn't know God. Not, but but they practice this thing called contemplative prayer. I think that's scary. Yeah, it might be for you. But if they're bearing the fruits of love and displaying the life of Christ, who am I to question that? They're just seeing the face of the eagle while I'm staring at the face of the lion. Okay. I think I've been going long enough, so we got to get to our closing. This vision will change your life. We may not see it the way Ezekiel got to see it, because you may not have the curse of being called to be a prophet, but we can we can try to step into the deeper water by shedding our puddle jumpers a little bit. So, goodbye, these. Let's go into the deeper water, okay? Let's finish by going there. Let's not rely upon people to hold our hand, and let's take a swim. So I want to point out one thing. Um, In chapter 2, Ezekiel's told about the people of Israel. He basically says that they're deaf and dumb and blind, in a sense. They're just not listening to me. And it's so bad that he says, look, if I called you to preach to a people who don't know your language, they would listen more than these people who know your language will. But that's really discouraging. You're going to go talk to people who are not going to listen to you. But in chapter 2, verse 8, we come to this moment that we want to emulate. Two eight. but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. He's talking about Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. So the scroll is being spread open right before Ezekiel. So the words are now seen And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So we start off with puddle jumpers, but there's going to be a day when you don't need these because you grew up. It's not that these failed. It's that you grew up. So look. Your childhood view of God didn't fail; you just grew up. God didn't fail, like all those that go to universities think. Oh, God, no, God didn't fail; you just grew up. How do I then get? How do I then trans? trans, How do I get through this really scary wilderness to the reorder, to the deeper water? How do I get through that? Yeah, like Israel in the wilderness is going to be a little trying, but this is how you eat this scroll. That's what God gave to Ezekiel to help him through this. Ezekiel, eat this. Have a full stomach, because when you get nauseous and queasy, you're going to need something substantial to stand on. Eat this scroll, Ezekiel. We would, of course, call it a book. Eat this book. Eat it. Okay. The cool thing about eating food, taking God's words and calling it something to eat, like a meal, is that recipes are not food, right? Here we have in our hands food, but it's really a lot of recipes telling us how to get to the food. But here's the thing about recipes, is that they can't nourish me. Recipes can't simply be read. Oh, cool, cool, look at this. Ooh, I bet that's really delicious. Ooh, that looks so healthy. Ooh, that looks so devilish. (laughs) Recipes don't do anything if you read them. They must be followed and obeyed. And only when I follow the recipe, I put the ingredients together and I bake it at the right temperature and mix it at the right time and put the right amounts of everything together. Only when I follow, when I copy, when I put into practice what the recipe is telling me, can I actually get something out of it. And so when God tells you and I, as we hold the Bible, eat this book, sometimes we get in the habit of looking at it like a recipe. As if we're distant observers. Wow, Ezekiel is, he's, wow, what a vision he had. I wonder what it was like for him. When the whole time it's calling us into it saying, hey, I want you to see a vision of me so that you can live a deeper life, not a puddle jumper life. It's a recipe calling you into the experience. See, the thing is that when I eat something, when I eat something, it's not just like a band-aid that I put on my thumb and say, oh, now it's covered. When I eat it, actually becomes part of me. It goes into my body. It becomes part of my muscles, my sinews, my tendons. It nourishes me. And they say you are what you eat because what you eat becomes literally part of the body, the building blocks of who you are. And when I eat this book, it becomes part of who I am. So that I no longer need to wear my what would Jesus do bracelet. Because Jesus is becoming part of who I am as I eat this book. So I want to take you guys through a practice that I have taught my students at Lake Road Christian School. It's it's basically emulating a very uh, standard way that's been taught for thousands of years, but it's much simpler because, of course, if it's old, it means it comes in Latin, right? It's really confusing. So I just kind of gave it some better wording. But it's, um, it's called RIP, R-I-P-P. And so every day as they come into class, I have a passage on the board and it's their job to come in and rip the passage. Of course, they love to get a kick out of, oh, I'm going to rip the Bible. <laughs> but actually, in a way, that's a good thing. Like they're getting into it, right? They're, it's, you're, when you rip something, you got to get into it. And that's what we want. We want it to get into them. So they rip the passage. And what it stands for is R is read. You've got to read This book, if you want to get it into you, it starts with reading and it sounds so elementary, but here's how you read. I I once tried and I please don't I'm not making fun of you if you can do the one year Bible, but I can't. I tried. I think for every year, for like five years, I tried to do the one year Bible. And for me, it was too fast. I don't just read the Bible like it's the newspaper. I can read that fast, whatever. It's just details that are going to change tomorrow anyways. But the Bible is meant to be taken slow. The way you you would not race through a $30 steak. They only give you that much anyways, right? So you got to eat it slow so it's worth every dollar. Take take the Bible. And if you read the one in your Bible, that means you're doing about four chapters a day. Great. Read all those, but then find a section and take it slow. Reading means chewing. It means dig- it just let it jump out at you. And so I encourage them, as we take a small little section from the Gospels, because that's what we're teaching them, um, read it at least two times. The first time, so you're like, okay, I, I get what's happening here. The second time, because you want the text to read you now. You want it to say something to you. So read it again and read it slow. So, that's the R part. Read. I. Impressions. What are the impressions that these words make upon you? Now, they often forget and think it's interpretation. They ask me, can I use my phone to look up a word? And the answer is no. Sometimes it's yes, because I get it. There's some words in the Bible you don't get. That's fine. But it's not interpretation. You're not reading going, oh, cool. I'm going to figure this out. It's impression. What word impressed you in the reading? What question impressed you? What concept impressed you? And I love the word impression because it's like, well, when you get up off of a really nice deep sofa and you look back to see if you left your phone or your keys, what do you see in the sofa? Your impression. It's just been pressed into it. What you're trying to do is discover what of the Bible that I read left a mark on me. You may not have a clue why it is, what it is. um, Like it might be the word there. Like in tonight's text. Why is that word there sticking It's such a simple word. It's the with R-E after it. There. Go with it. It's impressing you for a reason. So, R read I impress P pray. So I tell them write down the impression. T H E R E. Now close your eyes and focus on that word. Not focus on it like imagine every letter, imagine yourself writing it, define it, squeeze it, look at it forward, backward, inside and out. That's too analytical. Just sit in silence with that prayer on that word on your mind. So you sit with God, and the word there is just sort of hovering. Sit for a few minutes, and somewhere, an image comes, or you hear a voice. Something starts to make sense out of that. That's the idea. Sit with your impression before God. Sometimes nothing happens, and that's okay. You're too tired that day, or whatever. That's, that happens, but enough times it happens that you want to keep coming back for the feast. So that's, that's the P part, the prayer. And then finally, read, impression, prayer, plunge. Make the plunge. Eating this book will help us make the plunge into the deep end. And this is what we do. Often what we tend to think of when we read the Bible is like, how, okay, cool, I saw this, I read it, I understand it. How do I apply this to my life? That's puddle jumper reading. I apply a puddle jumper to myself. That doesn't change me at all. I don't become a swimmer because I wear a puddle jumper. I become a swimmer because the act of swimming gets inside me. So we need a plunge. Or another way to think of this is um, sometimes we're trying to put the Bible into our life when really what we're trying to do, what we want to do, is put our life into the Bible. This is a gateway into God's world, into what Jesus called God's kingdom. And it's asking us to take the plunge. It's like the sidewalk chalk that Bert creates in Mary Poppins on Cherry Lane. And Mary Poppins jumps into the picture with the children, and the world changes around them. That's what the Bible's inviting us to do. It doesn't want to be handled like, oh, I got it. Apply this verse here, and when this situation comes up, I'll put the verse there, like some sort of cologne that kind of makes me live like a nicer person. That's not the idea. It's by us getting inside of it, we now live in a different world, and we begin to respond to the world differently. And it begins to get inside of us as we're inside of it. We begin to take on the aroma of the kitchen, if you will. Taking the plunge. That's the idea. So you read, you look for impressions, you sit in prayer with those impressions, and then also a form of prayer is you're now plunging into what God has shown you and just letting it wash over you so that it becomes part of your thinking, your feeling, your tendons, your sinews, every part of your being. And you just let God wash that into everything and you begin to visualize people. You begin to visualize situations and you're like, I get it. I'm seeing this. I'm seeing that when I was over there one time and I doubted that God loved me or that God is guiding my life, he spoke there into that word. I was there by the Chabar Canal. Or when I, when, I was, when I was being wrongly accused by that person and they said those things that hurt me and my family and, and I wasn't sure that God was even in this person's life at all, God said, there. I wasn't only in that situation forming your character, but I was in that person too as he did that. No longer am I seeing the world as enemies and friends, as binary and polarization of things. That's what small box, the box of order, the puddle jumper does. Because you need to understand the world. This is good. This is like, it's, it's super simple, but there comes a point when you begin to realize, but God is there. God is there. God is in all of this. And yes, there's not, it doesn't mean I have to love everything or be part of everything, but I can realize that life itself, God is teaching me through all of these things. So we learn this as we eat this book. And so God's giving us the invitation as we jump into Ezekiel to eat this book with him. We rip it, we read it, we look for impressions, we pray, and we take the plunge. Let's pray. So Father, as we yearn to live in a world where you are not in a neat little box that fits in our pocket, we want to live in a world Where the entire universe is the box. Everywhere we go, you're not in our pocket, but we are in.